Well, do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can. Get with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We're in a series right now. We're calling it um, Faithful Living in Fearful Times. We are trying to navigate uh, a cultural moment that is challenging and difficult, and we're looking at the playbook. We're looking at the example that Daniel and his friends gave to us as they navigated the cultural challenges of living in Babylon and um, trying to figure out what does it look like? What does it mean to be um, faithful in the midst of that cultural pressure? So Daniel chapter 6, this will be the last one that we do in this little series, Um, but we're going to look at Daniel chapter 6, and this is a very famous story, so you might be familiar with it, but... uh, I'm going to read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Daniel chapter 6, there are 28 verses, so it'll take a minute to read, but it'll it'll be well worth our time. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, He pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. 
Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They've not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would speak. We're grateful for your word, God, and we ask right now that by your word, you would speak to your people and help us to live faithfully in these fearful times. Thank you for the example of Daniel and also of his friends. And now we pray, Lord, that you would use this time to build up your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at this and we're thinking about as believers, how is it that we navigate this cultural moment? Daniel gives us a good example. He shows us three different things here that we're going to track with as we work our way back through the story. We need to be excellent. We need to be excellent in the way that we conduct ourselves. Um, We need also to be consistent in the way that we display our faith. And finally, we need to be confident in God. So let's get after it. Let's be excellent in the way that we handle ourselves. Daniel and his friends, over and over, repeatedly throughout the book of Daniel, you find them being described as these exceptional individuals, that they are doing something and they're doing it so well that people are taking note of it. They're, they're noticing that, that Daniel and his friends are just doing their job really, really well. Uh, now, their job is a little bit tricky because they have been forcibly removed from their homeland. They're Hebrew individuals, they're followers of God, they were living in Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army came in and defeated the Israelites and then took Daniel and his friends away from their hometown and co-opted them into their culture. And he forced them to become advisors to the king and forced them to kind of go through a rigorous training of three years to become better Babylonians and to learn the ways of the culture. And they're, they're doing their job then, which is to be government officials advising King Nebuchadnezzar earlier on, and then Belshazzar, and now Darius the Mede. So their job is to do the work of the government, to be advisors to the leadership in the nation. Now, here's what's incredible about them. They're doing such a good job that people keep saying, these men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, 
they're really, really good at their job. In fact, they're so good that they keep getting promotions. Over and over throughout the book of Daniel, they end up being on top because they're the best. So let's look at it. It says in verse 3, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He's doing his job so well that he's distinguished from all of his colleagues. He's doing his job so well that everyone keeps noticing him and saying, this is an, an incredible individual. This man is doing his job and doing it in an exceptional way. Earlier, actually in chapter 5, the queen said to a previous king, she said, there is a man in your kingdom. He is filled with the spirits of the gods. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the gods within him. Everyone keeps noticing Daniel and his friends are different. They're different, and one of the things that makes them different is their ethic, their work ethic, the way that they conduct their business. Christians, I want to put it like this. As we go through this cultural moment, may it be said of us that people look at the way that we do our job, and they say, they stand out. They're doing such a phenomenal job that it is no, it's noteworthy. They, they are excelling in their work. Now, I know that work means a lot of different things. If you're a student, it means you need to be exceptional in your academics. You need to be doing your homework and doing, you know, the things that are required of you. Um, if you're a parent and maybe, you know, you're at home right now, you need to be parenting in a way that's exceptional, saying, I'm going to invest myself in my children. I'm going to pour myself over them. If you're working for an employer, uh, why not set it as an ambition to be known for the way in which you are doing your job? right now, that they would look at you and they would say, this person is so industrious and, and so just uh, ab above criticism that I could give them any task and be confident in it. That's what we ought to be aiming for in this moment. In this cultural moment, let's be exceptional. Let's be excellent in the way that we go about our work. That's where we get this idea of the Christian work ethic. We're at the tree farm and it should be, you know, it should be something that we could say, if the tree farm hires believers. They, it would be nice to be able to say, those believing individuals would actually be a huge asset to the farm because they're going to work. They're, they're, they're going to work really, really hard. They're going to do everything that they can. They're going to be industrious in the way that they're going about the stuff that's required of them. And it's not just the productivity. It's not just, you know, how many trees can you shake and bale, but it's also the way in which you do it that other people would see you and the kindness and the, the character that you have, and, and it would be magnetic to them. Um, Scott Saul is a pastor. He puts it like this. One of the metrics that we ought to evaluate in a workplace is, do people enjoy working with you? You know, there's a relational component to it as well, but Christians, we ought to be excellent in this moment. I hope that when you go to work, people don't kind of roll their eyes at you and notice that you're cutting corners and noticing that you're, you're skimping or you're not doing a good job or, or you're doing your job in a way that isn't beneficial to other people. If you're a salesperson, I mean, let's be the kind of salespeople who are benefiting our customers and not just trying to increase the bottom line. Let's be distinguished in the way that we work. Daniel had this exceptional quality about him. And God makes that available to us as well. He has gifted us with our talents and our abilities. He fills us with his own spirit. And we, therefore, can be the kind of people who go to work and people say, this person is crushing it. 
They're doing an awesome job, and there's, there must be a reason for that. Furthermore, be unassailable in your character. Look at verse 4. They, uh, when they found out that Daniel was going to get this promotion and he was going to be the person in charge of the entire area, remember the king was saying, I'm going to set satraps over different regions so that they would rule in my place. But Daniel, because he's so exceptional, I'm going to change my game plan, and he's actually going to be the chief of staff. He's going to be the number one person in all my region, all my land, all my kingdom. He's my guy. And when the other administrators heard this, they thought, well, we don't like that, so let's find something about him that we can you know, hang him out on. Let's find something about Daniel that would prevent him from getting this promotion. Verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Now, this is an exceptional description of a politician, is it not? There's, he has such an amazing character about him that there's no corruption in him and there's no negligence about him. He is capable at his job and he is above criticism. Daniel is unassailable in his character. Be the kind of people who, when, when individuals say, I wish I could find something about them that I could critique, they, they have to come away and say, but it's actually really hard to do. When I look at you, I, I'd love to critique you, but you, you're such an individual of character that I just have a hard time even finding anything with which I can criticize. So be excellent in the way that you're going about your job and in the way that you're conducting your affairs and in the way that you're managing um, how you're received by other people. And what we notice then is that when you do that, there's a mixed response. If you're, as a believer, trying to do this right now, some people will look at that and go, that's incredible, and I'm going I'm to promote you. You're doing an awesome job, and therefore, I'm going to give you more responsibility. There are some people who will look at that and say, well, that's beneficial to me, and that's beneficial to our organization, that's beneficial to our society. This person continues to get elevated uh, in their position then. But there's another response as well, and that is, even if you are, are being excellent in the way you're working and carrying yourself, be aware that some people, some people will, will respond not with respect, not with admiration, but, but instead with hatred. And this is the, the experience of Daniel here in this text. There's a jealousy there. And so the people actually say, we want to find something to put him out of his position. Now, Jesus taught this in John 15. He puts it like this. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. If you're living faithfully for, for God's sake, be aware that there's going to be a mixed response. Some people will notice and praise you and, and you know, promote you, but some people will take note of your faithfulness to God, and it'll actually, it'll, it'll actually cause them to despise you. And they will look at you and say, okay, I don't like this. This is off-putting to me because it's different. Why are you so good? Why are you so faithful? Why are you so consistent? Why are you so careful in the way that you deal with other people? So we need to be excellent and we need to be aware that we could experience different responses to that. Here's the second thing that we find in our story today. We need to be consistent. Christians should be people who are very consistent in their faith. 
Um, one of the ways that this would show up is simply by being open and honest about our, our belief in God. Daniel was known, he was publicly known for being a follower of God. You find that in verse 5 where it says, we will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. They knew that he was a follower of God and they, after trying to find other things and coming up unsuccessful, they realized, well, he is so consistent in his love and admiration for God himself that if we're going to find something that we can critique, it's probably going to be in that realm of his obedience to the law of his God. So be known for your faith. I hope that you are living with this open honesty about your love for God right now. I hope that other people don't see you as kind of a chameleon Christian where if you were to you know, have a conversation, you said, look, I'm a follower of God. And they go, really? I had no idea. I hope that you're the kind of Christian who your, your faith in God is so real and so profound that people just know that about you, that they just they, they respect that about you, but you're living with that consistency that is very evident. Consistency shows up too in the habits that we keep. Christians should be people who have a routine, and that routine is something that is so um, habitual that other people would even be aware of it. Let's look at Daniel here in, in verse 10. It says, when Daniel learned that the decree had been signed, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. So Daniel has this pattern in his life that is unassailable. He has something that he does so consistently that other people are aware of it, but he has this habit of a routine time of prayer. He goes to his home. There's a window facing Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees, and he gives thanks to his God and he has done that consistently now for a long, long time. There's a habit. We need to be people who say, let's onboard some healthy habits right now. Let's have some patterns that we lean into in this moment where we would be able to say, this is what I do. And it's observable and it's consistent. And this is just a part of my routine. So for instance, Daniel prays three times a day. Maybe it's morning, you know, noon and evening. Maybe there are kind of three points in his in his routine where he says, I'm going to pause everything and I'm going to pray to my God. And I hope that you would be able to carve out maybe some time in your calendar where you say, every morning I'm going to do this. Every lunchtime, this will be my habit. Every evening, this is what I'm going to do. But he has a, a pattern. He has a routine. He does it in a specific location with a specific posture. I was thinking about that this week. There's wisdom there. Um, if I'm praying, but I'm laying down in my bed, what is my body saying to me? Get, get cozy, right? Get comfortable. We're going to sleep. Um, if, I'm, if I'm sitting and I'm holding my phone and I'm trying to pray, what is my body saying to me? There might be something here you should look at. But what if my body is in a posture where I'm kneeling What's my body communicating to me at that point? You're talking to God. You're, you're, in, you're in communion right now with God. Now, I don't do this very often, but this week it was something that came to mind that maybe I ought to onboard this pattern of praying in a posture like kneeling. Um, there's a pastor uh, from Chicago, A.W. Tozer, and I read his biography, and it was kind of bizarre to me, but he had um, 
some trousers that were at his church office, and they were like his prayer pants. Like he prayed on his knees so consistently that it would wear out his, his trousers. And so he got to the point where he just told his wife, I'm just going to have a set of pants that are for praying so that as I wear them out, it'll just be this one pair that keeps, you know, getting, getting worn down. He prayed so consistently on his knees that his garments reflected that. We as Christians should onboard that sort of habit, that sort of pattern where we're saying we're praying consistently, we're praying regularly, we're praying in a, maybe a specific location with a specific posture, but we're doing this as a way of fellowshipping with God. One of the best habits that I, that I got into was reading the Bible every year using a one-year Bible, and it's just that's one of the sacred routines in my life. I get up in the morning, and I read a portion of Scripture, and then I turn things that I saw there into prayers. But we need habits like that to help us. And those habits can be a very, very good thing, especially in times of crisis. Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it like this. In the crisis, Daniel's habit set him free to be faithful. So sometimes Christians will say to me, I don't want to do anything that rigid. I don't want to do anything that, that would have that much kind of you know, schedule to it. It feels like that would kind of be restrictive. It feels like maybe it would be inauthentic. That if I'm going to do this thing, there are going to be times where I don't feel like doing it. And then what does that mean in my relationship with God? I just want it to be natural. I want it to be organic. I want it to be authentic. And so therefore, I don't want to schedule it. But the truth is, sometimes those schedules and those habits and those routines are actually really, 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 really beneficial because they build a pattern into your life that puts you in a position to experience the relationship with God that you're intended for. So he does this thing, and I would encourage you to think through what are your habits? What are your routines? And what could you adjust right now to try to become a more prayerful person or to try to become a more consistent Bible reader? What are the things that you could do? Now, as he prays, and you might be wondering, why on earth does he go to his home and go in front of a window and pray toward Jerusalem? What's going on there? Now, he's not, you know, superstitious. He's not, uh, you know, doing this religious routine. He's actually just obeying God. Um, the temple was built in Jerusalem by a king named Solomon. And when they were dedicating the temple... It was, a, it was a building where the people of God would gather and they'd worship God and all their different religious activities would occur there and, and um, the, the glory of God was set upon there, the name of God was set upon there. God kind of promised to um, reside or manifest his glory in that location. And so when they were dedicating the temple, the king was praying and it was an instructive prayer. He was praying about the temple and then how the people of God ought to think about it. And there were a lot of beautiful things that he prayed about there as far as, you know, how to perform justice and the, the role of the people of God and blessing the foreigners and things like that. But then he says this incredible, you know, thing that God inspired him to say. He said, if the people of God forsake you, God, if they ever get to a place where they stop listening to your voice and they are therefore exiled and taken away from this temple, if there's ever a situation where the people of God fail to live up to their calling and they suffer the consequences of that and you, Lord, are disciplining them in love and mercy, if that ever happens, and if the people then who are exiled remember you and they turn toward this temple and pray, 
hear their prayers. In fact, let me show it to you. This is 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 48 and 49. This is King Solomon praying. He said, if the exiles turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you've chosen and the temple, which I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. What is Daniel doing then? He's listening to God's voice. He says, I am going to, because we're exiled, because I've been taken away from Jerusalem, because I don't know if I'm ever going back, but here's what I do know. I'm going to manage what I have control over. I'm going I'm to turn toward God. Literally, in this case, I'm going to turn toward Jerusalem, and I'm going to pray to him. And I'm going to ask that he would forgive us for our transgressions, for our failure to acknowledge him. Uh, you see this in chapter 9 of Daniel. He begins to kind of, he, he talks about how he is culpable. He is a part of this community that forsook the living God. And he prays in this way toward the temple, and he prays with confidence then that God hears his prayers and answers them. And so that's what he's doing. And so you might be thinking, okay, well, Cor, which, which direction do I need to face then? Okay, so I'm going to walk out of here today and I'm going to try to, you know, onboard this holy habit of praying regularly. Which way do I need to face? And the issue isn't really a direction. It's not that we need to turn toward the temple in Jerusalem. The issue is turning our hearts toward God. And the issue is praying for God's purposes in and through his people. Are, are we doing that? Are we willing to say to God, we have fallen short of your desire and your design for us? And we want your people the new temple of God, the place where you reside in the hearts of your people. We want that to be a holy place. And so we are turning our attention to you, God, and we are praying on behalf of your people, let us display your glory. And God hears those sorts of prayers and he answers them. So we need to be a people who are praying to God about his church. And when we do this, we need to determine that prayer is a non-negotiable. That it's something that we're going to do no matter what, even if it means harm. So Daniel here says, I know there's a law out there, and if I pray to my God, I'm going to be taken captive and thrown into a lion's den. But this for me is a non-negotiable. I'm going to pray just as I always have, and I don't care if people see me. I'm not going to go into secrecy or hiding here. I'm going to pray just the way that I have over these many years. So Paul House puts it like this. He was not praying to be seen by others, but he does not fear others seeing him. He's praying and he's saying, I, I'm not trying to do this to try to show off how spiritual and religious I am, but I'm not afraid of other people taking note of that, even if it means that they're, they're going to do harm to me. So he was drawing a line in the sand. And we as Christians, we have to have certain principles, certain convictions that we say, there is a point with which I will not cross. There are things that people may ask of me that I am unwilling to flex on. And, and there has to be convictions that we have then where we say, we're going to draw a line in the sand, so to speak. And there are, there, there are things that if our culture, if our government, if somebody tries to impose this on me as a believer, I'm going to say, respectfully, I decline. Because there are fundamental things about me with which I have to do. So I want to talk about that for just a minute because many of those conversations are going on right now. At what point do we need to be civilly disobedient? At what point does the church need to push back and say, I'm sorry, 
but we cannot do that. That is violating what we believe God is calling us to do. And um, let me step on some toes here. Um, I want you to notice that in the story of Daniel, he suffers a lot of inconveniences. There are a lot of things with which he is willing to participate in in that Babylonian culture. He is brought into a training program. He's brought into the governmental structure. He's doing his job really well. He's a blessing to that community. He's engaged in a lot of different ways. But listen to the things that he suffered. He suffered the loss of his conveniences. He suffered the loss of his ability to express his cultural identity without hindrances. He suffered the loss of the ability to meet with the people of God and to worship God in that corporate setting that they once had in Jerusalem. He lost all kinds of different things, and he didn't complain about it. I, don't, I can't find any complaints in the book of Daniel that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah offer up. It doesn't seem like that's what they're going to do. No, they're fully engaged in their cultural moment, being a blessing to the Babylonian culture. And there are only a certain couple things that they say, there's a line with which we will not cross. The first is, if you want me to worship something other than the true God, I'm incapable of doing that. If you want me to worship, if you want me to express adoration to anyone other than the God who is my Savior, that's not an option for me. I will die for that. God is able to save me, but if he doesn't, come what may. Here's the other option. If you try to tell me that I cannot communicate with my God, that is such a necessary part of my experience, I'm not going to hide that, and I'm not going to stop doing that. As a believer, I must I insist, I respectfully decline obeying your law, your majesty. I have to talk to my Savior. Those are the things with which we ought to be able to draw a line and say, look, there are aspects of our culture that will, that will try to push us toward cultural appropriation. There are things that are going to happen, in, in my opinion, in our lifetime, where the culture is trying to say, you need to be engaged in this, you need to care about this, you need to do these sorts of things. And on a lot of that, as Christians, we can live counterculturally, but we can still be engaged. But there are going to be a certain few things where it feels like culture is trying to get you to cross a line with which you cannot cross. And you have to be confident that you understand who God is and what he's calling you to. And then you have to be able to say, like the three gentlemen who were thrown in a furnace, God is able to save me from this. And I'm going to be faithful to him in this. But even if God doesn't save me, I will not worship your gods. Or Daniel here. I'm sorry, king. I respect you. I, I serve you. I gladly serve you. But if you're asking me to stop praying, I cannot do that. I will not do that. You can throw me to a lion. I'm going to do what I have to do. We have to be Christians who have that sort of consistency and that sort of conviction. Thirdly, we see here that we need to be confident in God. We need to be confident in God. Um, Daniel gives us a great example of what it looks like to trust in the God who is. He's confident in God's ability to provide for him. He's confident in um, what God is, is doing in this moment. And he is He's not putting his trust in the government or in some leader. In fact, I didn't notice this until this week, but one of the things that's going on here is Daniel chapter 6 is showing us the application of Psalm 146. Let me show it to you. We'll put it up on the screen. Psalm 146 verse 3 
The psalmist says to the people of God, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. The people of God are not to look to human beings as their mode of salvation. They're not to look to human leaders and think, well, that's the way that we're really going to get things going. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot be saved. And then what the, what the writer does here in chapter 6 is the writer highlights not Daniel, who has just been thrown into the lion's den in his experience. What does he highlight? The king. For the next several verses, the writer in chapter 6 is saying, look at this king. This king who just signed a law that he is the most important person in all of the land, and people can only pray to him. What is that law intending? It's intending to show his power and his might. But what's really going on here? He's powerless. He's been tricked. He's been manipulated. He can't change a law because there's this cultural reality that he cannot change the laws of the Medes or the Persians. He is powerless in this moment, and he is distraught over that. Let's look at it. He's tricked in verses 13 and 14. They said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He thought he was doing such an awesome thing by signing his name on this edict, and then all of a sudden it dawns on him, I messed up. I just enforced a law that I don't agree with, and I'm going to have to punish somebody that I like, and I'm not okay with that. So he's being tricked here. He's being manipulated here. His sovereignty is limited. He doesn't know everything, and people are able to manipulate him in this situation to try to get their, their ends met. So the king tries to save Daniel in the second half of verse 14. He was determined to rescue Daniel, and he made every effort until sundown to save him. What's the problem? He's not able to do that. He's looking for every opportunity to try to change the situation, but apparently there's, there's not a good option here. He can't do it. He's trying really hard to save Daniel, but he doesn't have the ability to do that. So he is powerless in this instance, and he's also upset. He's anxious. If you look at verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 18, it says, the king returned to his palace, and he spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. This mighty king is distraught. He's at home, and he's all worked up over the fact that he just got tricked into doing harm to his best advisor. He's unable to sleep. He's anxious about this. So why is it that, that Daniel chapter 6 paints this incredible contrast between the king and his anxiety and in his limitations and Daniel. They're different. The king is all fraught and distressed. And what is Daniel doing? If you're tracking with the story, it just feels like he's kind of calm, like that he's not, he's not distraught. He's not upset. He's not kind of angsty. He's not kind of retaliating. Like this is such a ridiculous law that's being enforced against us. And, and I'm just upset about it. No, no, no. You just find Daniel quietly, calmly, confidently carrying on. He's just following God. And there's a tremendous difference then, and I want you to have that difference. I want you to be the kind of people who are going through these traumatic cultural moments, and people are looking at you, and they're going, why are you so, I hate to even use the, the phrase, easygoing? 
why, why are you so calm right now? Look at our world. Look at how everything is unraveling. Look at how angry people are. Look at, look at what's happening in our society right now. The fractions, the divisions, the hostility, the hatred, the animosity. And then I look at you, and you're committed to God, but you're different. You're not angry. You're not slandering other people. You're, you're, you're not, you know, boo-hooing about the cultural situation that you find yourself in. You're just calmly carrying on as a believer. How does that happen? Well, he trusts in God. He trusts in God's ability to rescue him. Verse 21 gives the story of that rescue. He says, the king, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in the sight of God. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. He had trusted in his God. He wasn't sure how this was going to play out, but he was confident that God is able. And he gets thrown to the lions and he ends up coming out. Okay, well, his adversaries, not so much. Verse 24, they get a much different experience. They're overwhelmed by the lions and their bones are crushed. So Daniel is vindicated. He is proven to be a man of faith who God is looking after. And then here's what's really incredible. Because of his confidence in God, because of his trust in God, we see this kind of missionary activity happening. And, and this week I was just blown away by this, but what the people of God are supposed to be is an outpost of the kingdom of heaven. We're supposed to be the missionary people of God. And so when we are doing this well, when we're living faithfully in a fearful age, people are noticing us as individuals and the church collectively, and this is the vibe that we ought to have, people should be drawn to the God of all nations and all peoples. Let's look at it. This is what Darius writes after experiencing this incredible salvation from God. He wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. That's what God is after, his glory being known in every place with every people. So he writes and he says, may you prosper greatly. I'm issuing a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. It's this missionary text. He's saying, look, Daniel was faithful to the point of death. Now I want everyone to know that. Daniel was a believer who was willing to sacrifice his own life for his faith in God. He trusted in God and it worked out for him. So now everybody everywhere ought to reverence the God of Daniel for he's the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. Dan Daniel is the, the person who is trusting in the Savior God, and therefore everybody ought to know about it. Publish this news. Make it known to all peoples in all places, in every language, that there is a God who saves. And Daniel is following him. So let's make it known to all peoples in all places in every language, there is a Savior God and we belong to him. We're following him. We trust in him. And then we find this final verse, 28, and it's just kind of a time stamp on a story. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
Here's, here's what we've noticed going through the book of Daniel. Kings come and go. Leaders come and go. In fact, Daniel prayed this way in chapter 2. The Lord, God, he's the one who deposes kings and sets them up. Kings are transient. Leaders, they're here for a moment, then they're gone. Here's what does not fade away. God and his kingdom. And followers of God are trusting in him. We're not trusting in princes. We're not trusting in leadership of our nation or any nation. We're trusting in God. And so leaders come and go, but the kingdom of God endures forever. Daniel prospered during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Darius and Cyrus and others. Daniel was a person of faith living under God's rulership and God's reign, and it worked out for him. So church, we're going to be okay. We're going to be just fine. Our king is on the throne. King Jesus has secured for us a sure victory. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us to live faithfully in this fearful time. We want to be examples of trust in you, faith in you. We want the world to even take note of us, not because of our greatness or or anything like that, but because it points people to you. So help us to be excellent and help us to be confident and and help us to be examples of Christ-likeness in this broken world. And so we commit our individual lives to you and we pray that our church could be a beacon of hope, an outpost of the kingdom of God in this broken and fallen world. Help us to do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.